0: Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Sometimes um, I think it's easy to think like the pastor comes up and he preaches to you, Uh, but it's always a good reminder like I find myself this morning feeling the need to hear this sermon probably as much as if not more than, than all of you and And this is part of the reality for pastors as well. We need to hear these sermons. And so we get to preach them maybe throughout the week, but we also need to hear them on Sunday morning as we gather as well. And so this morning we're going to return to our series in the Old Testament book of Esther. This has been a chapter-by-chapter journey thus far. And today we are looking at Esther 6. So if you've got a Bible or device you want to turn or swipe there, I invite you to do that. You can also follow along on the screen behind me when we read Esther 6. But before we read Esther 6, let's review a little bit where we're at in this story. So the story began with an introduction to a king whose name was King Ahasuerus. And he's a man who seemingly enjoys getting drunk. He also is a man who is a bit drunk on himself. He thinks highly of himself. And the book began with the record of a six-month party that King Ahasuerus threw to show off his many riches and possessions. And one of his possessions that he sought to show off was his wife, as he sought to show her off to other drunken men. But his wife's name, Queen Vashti, Uh, She refused to be paraded in front of these men, and this enraged the king. Ultimately, he removed her from her position, and so then he began a search for a new queen. And this search was far and wide. The search was also wicked, as many young women were taken from their homes and placed in the king's harem. Their job, these women's job, was to beautify themselves in preparation for one night with the king. This was their audition, to see if the king likes them, if the king approves of them. And for over a year, no woman was found. But then one day, a young Jewish woman named Esther went to the king and gained his favor to the point that she was crowned the next queen. This would seemingly be a great day for the Jewish people in Persia. However, we quickly read of dire news for the Jews. There is a man named Haman who has gained an elite position within Persia. Basically, the king's right-hand man. He provides counsel to king Ahasuerus. And Haman hates Jewish people because one of them, one of them, refused to honor him as he walked the streets of Susa, the capital of Persia. And so, Haman coerced the king into issuing an edict that calls for a day in which all Jewish people within Persia were to be killed. And once they are killed, then all of their possessions can be plundered as well. And this sets, about, sets out a pro, about a process where Esther feels really conflicted. As queen, she wants to help her people, yet she's also resistant because of personal risk for herself. But eventually she agrees to go to the king to risk her life to seek his help. Now, in the midst of all this, if we go back to chapter 2, we read of a curious little detail that I mentioned a couple times. This detail is going to come back up later on. But this is what we read at the end of chapter 2. It said, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, This seemingly odd detail that was mentioned previously in the story now becomes front and center for us as we pick up the story in Esther chapter 6. So let me read Esther 6 for us, and then we will get into this. On that night, the king could not sleep. So uh, just quick context here. Remember, uh, Esther had requested the king and Haman to provide a feast for them, okay? And so she provided that feast, and the king said, hey, what would you request? And she said, I'd request that you would come back for another feast the next day. And so this is in between, the night in between those two feasts. And the king gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let's pray. Thank you for this story. Would you please instruct us this morning? Would you help us to see grace, see good news in the midst of this story? Thank you for the ways in which you have written the Bible, compiled it for us in such a way that ultimately we arrive at Jesus. So would you get us to Him this morning, lead us to His throne, so that our faith in Him might be built and our lives might sing and speak worship and praise of his name. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to give just a real brief summary of this story. Then we're going to remind ourselves of God's providence, and then we're going to observe a few realities in this story. We're going to look at King Ahasuerus' discomfort, Haman's pride, the honoring of Mordecai, and in that we're going to focus on grace, and then we're going to talk about Esther as a Jewish queen. Okay, so if we go back to chapter 5 and quickly remind ourselves what precedes this, Haman was a mix of emotions. On one hand, he had been riding high. He was tickled by the fact that he was included in this exclusive feast put on by Esther, and then that he had been invited back for another feast, For him and King Ahasuerus, just the two of them. And yet, despite all of this, these good things happening to him, he was also teeming with anger. Because as he uh, had left um, the first feast, he'd seen Mordecai. And he was reminded of his hatred of Mordecai and the fact that Mordecai would not honor him in the way that he desired. And so with help from his friends and from his wife, he determined that his key to happiness was hanging Mordecai. And so chapter six picks a story up. The night between these two feasts, Esther was throwing for King Ahasuerus and Haman. And in this story, we find Ahasuerus is finding sleep tough on this particular night. And so he asks for a book To be read to him. And this book contains the story of when Mordecai exposed a plot to kill the king. He asks if any recognition was ever given to Mordecai and found that nothing had ever been done for Mordecai. And so, as Haman is coming in to the king to ask him to kill Mordecai, King Ahasuerus asks for the perspective of Haman regarding how an unnamed person should be honored. And Haman is thinking to himself, who would the king want to honor more than myself? I am his right-hand man. He, he comes to me asking for my perspective, and so he goes overboard in suggesting how honor ought to be bestowed on this person, thinking that the honor is going to be shown to him. In this story, and we see this numerous times In Esther, but the irony is thick here. There are parts of Esther where humor is pervasive, and this is one of those spots. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Haman is a picture of evil, that it's easy to root against him in some senses, that he is this wicked man, and so now we're getting this picture of him. Getting his due, at least beginning to get his due, right? And so maybe it causes us to chuckle a little bit. We're seeing evil being confronted, at least a picture of evil being confronted in a robust way. Now, we've mentioned throughout this series that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And for a book that is in the Bible, that is massively odd, right? That it doesn't talk about God. The whole Bible is about God, and it's about His glory. Why is there no mention of God? In our lives, God at times may feel distant from us, may feel silent to us, but that is not intended to lead us to the conclusion that God does not care about us. He does, even in those moments when He feels distant and silent. God cares about us. See, when trouble hits our lives, it can be easy for us to view God through our troubled circumstances. And in this, it can be easy for us to doubt God, to question his power, to question his goodness, to wonder whether he does still care about us. And so I want to contend that we should flip this upside down. Instead of viewing God Through the lens of our troubled circumstances, we should view our troubled circumstances through the lens of God. We we should let what we know have learned about God through the gospel inform our understanding of troubled circumstances. We shouldn't let bad circumstances form our view of God. In Esther 6, we're reminded of God's providence, his quiet providence, in a number of ways. First, the chapter begins by telling us how the king is unable to sleep. Now, we don't know why, right? Whether it's a nightmare, maybe it's some gas, maybe it's a noise that he hears, but he can't sleep, and so he asks to be read to. And the second reminder of God's providence is that King Ahasuerus asked to have a certain book read to him, the book that chronicles good deeds done to the king. And it just so happens that one of the stories being read to the king that night is about Mordecai and the time when he overheard two of the king's men discussing their plans to kill the king. And so we've got a number of things going on here, right? The fact that the king... Can't sleep. The fact that he asked for a certain book to be read. The fact that in that book there's this specific story. Are you beginning to see how there's all of these seemingly coincidental details, what some might call lucky, details that just so happen to fall into place? This is not accidental. This is God ruling in his own ways, accomplishing his good plans through circumstances that are really bad, really horrific. But this proves the goodness of God, that he will take the worst of things and he will turn them for his good. Okay, now, from God's providence, let's now take a brief look at the king's discomfort. So without knowing the cause, we merely can observe that the king is uncomfortable. This is more than just an odd coincidental fact in the story because of where this leads, where it leads us. See, the discomfort of the king results in the comfort of Mordecai. The discomfort of the king results in the comfort of Mordecai. This sounds very much like the gospel. Jesus is afflicted so that we would be comforted. Isaiah 53 foretells how Jesus will be afflicted and in so doing, he will provide peace for those who trust in him. The discomfort of Jesus leads to the comfort of his followers. Now, to be really clear about this, our American concept of comfort is maybe a bit different than how biblical authors often spoke of comfort. When we think about comfort, we oftentimes envision a life of ease, of pleasure, of leisure, whereas comfort spoken in the Bible was oftentimes in response to persecution or suffering or death. And so we've just got to understand that maybe uh, biblical authors are coming at this idea of comfort in a different way than the Western mind would tend to think about it. Also, a difference here is that we tend to want comfort to terminate on us, to enjoy it for ourselves. But biblically, that is not how comfort is pictured. Paul wrote in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, I want to be really clear, this is not a law to be followed. Paul is saying that living in light of the gospel, that living in light of grace, that the only reasonable response to comfort is to share it with others, is to pass it on to others. The trouble that brings true discomfort oftentimes undoes us to the extent that we are needy. We need help. Trouble oftentimes saps us of strength. If we look at Mordecai, Mordecai was completely undone when he heard the news about Jews being killed. He needed help. Because his Jewish people were allowed to be slaughtered, he, they, were in clear need of comfort. And it was the discomfort of the king that led to his comfort. This idea is good for us to be reminded of. Our comfort however it might come to us, typically comes at the cost of someone else. Typically comes at the affliction of another. And when we are comforted, it is not just so that we can put our feet up and enjoy life to enjoy the, comforted, the comfort itself. We are comforted so that we may offer comfort to those in need. Now, life is oftentimes a mixed bag for us, Right? So there's probably going to be times simultaneously when we need to be comforted and we're offering comfort to someone else. That's just how life oftentimes works. But, but this is a biblical model. We see this happen over and over again in the Bible. We are blessed to be a blessing. We love because we have been first loved by Jesus. Right? Like This happens over and over. The only natural response to being blessed It's to bless others. To be loved is to love others. And when we are comforted, the natural response is not to let that terminate on us, but to share that, to let it be compounded to others as well. Okay. So the king's discomfort leads to the comfort of others. Let's now look at Haman. Last week we touched on the aspect That Haman was plagued by pride. And when feeling down, angry, he resorted to his pride to try and prop himself up. He sought to remind himself and others of how important he was, how many sons that he had, how the king had promoted him, how rich he was. Basically, we said that he sought to lay out his resume to make himself feel better. But as we're here in chapter 6, I want to notice the language that is used at the end of this section as his wife and friends talk to him about what is going on in his life. Twice the word fall is used. So this is speaking of Haman's undoing, his failure, the loss that he is going to incur. And I was thinking about his pride. And when this word was mentioned here twice, it, it made me think of the popularized phrase. And it made me think of Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The popularized version of this verse is pride comes before the fall. Oftentimes, athletes will pound their chest or celebrate a great play that they just made. But the irony in that is that few people care about that play anymore. Once it's happened, it's done. What do we care about? We care about the next one. We want them to do it again. Pride never ends well we can't keep up the expectations people have of us, right? When an athlete celebrates the play that they just made, they're inviting an expectation upon themselves. Do it again, and then do it again, and eventually we're going to disappoint someone going to fail. That athlete is going to miss their assignment. They're going to miss a shot. They're not going to perform in the way that they would hope that they would perform. Or, ultimately, at the end of our lives, we die, right? And so we will be silenced. I talked last week briefly about Haman's pride, and I mentioned how when he was feeling glad of heart, he had no sense of the flimsiness of his pride. He felt invincible. But we see here a poignant example of what undergirds pride. It is not sturdy in any way. And this is why biblical authors warn us of it. There is only one certain thing for us to build our lives on. And that is Jesus. Only Jesus. This is why the New Testament exhorts Christians to boast only in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 131, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. In Galatians 6:14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we boast in Jesus, We're not boasting in what we have to do. There's not kind of this measurement that we have to keep measuring up to. We're continually deflecting, pointing to the one who can shoulder those expectations, who went into the grave and then came out of the grave. I was thinking about this as I heard um, right now the world championships are going on for track and field. And... I don't think this slide, it's not showing in here for some reason. Yeah, okay. Anyways, I had a picture of an athlete, um, and her name was Sydney McLaughlin, and she runs the 400-meter hurdles, and she's been setting world records basically every time that she's running, and... You know, at the end of races or competitions, you might oftentimes the victors will win, right? And they say, all glory to God. And then they go on and they they talk a, 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 maybe for a little bit or a lot about themselves and whatever. But it was clear that she had thought about this moment. She probably expected to win. She's been winning all of her races, but it was clear that she had thought about what she was going to say. This is what she said after her race. So the the interviewer Set up the question, right? Tell us about your race and so forth. And she said, yeah. Well, I'll have to start off by saying all the glory to God. These past few days, just getting ready for this race, Hebrews 4.16 has been on my mind, coming boldly to his throne to receive mercy and grace. And I really think he really gave me the strength to do it today. So all the glory goes to God. As I was watching this interview, she she went on from there and talked about the race, but I, I could almost feel like some of the discomfort. Like this was beyond the normal, like all glory to God, right? Like she she actually preached a mini sermon in, in at the beginning of her interview. And I could imagine like the interviewer being like, well, we gotta cut like we gotta cut this out. This is not what we're looking for, right? But but she's pinning her hopes on Jesus. And she's understanding that the grace that she's experienced that allows her to run fast, to do that really well, comes from outside of her. It's really easy for athletes, actors, uh, authors, wh- whomever it might be, to take the credit. right? But every good gift we have comes from above comes from jesus and this is why we get this encouragement in the new testament boast in jesus not in yourself boast only in jesus haman could have used this encouragement this reminder it would have saved him much pain okay then in this story we're finding mordecai being honored now, in the context of this story, we could think, oh, yeah, he heard this news and reported it, and so he deserves to be honored, right? He exposed those guys who wanted to kill the king. But if we really look into what Mordecai has done, we find his honor is actually a result of grace. He really just happened to be in the right spot at the right time to hear the conversation. He he didn't do anything remarkable. It was all a gift given to him. It's a result of grace. And now, this resulting in him being honored in this extravagant way, over and against his enemy, Haman, we can see all the more the picture of grace. Right, We're seeing here Haman, who so desperately sought to be honored, that honor is now escaping him, right? And yet, the one that he wanted to kill is where the honor is falling. All of us have this temptation in life at various times, circumstances, to boast in ourselves, to seek to pursue honor in some way. This is why we preach the gospel every single week. Because it keeps driving us to Jesus. And really, what, what we see in this story is this is for the joy of those. Like Mordecai, right? Him getting over himself, not making about himself, is for his joy. This is true for Haman as well. If he was, had moved beyond himself, was not pinning his hopes on himself. It would be for his joy. And so, even here in Esther 6, we're finding this encouragement, this push that ultimately leads us to Jesus. And we see this here with this last observation. So I want to talk about Esther as a Jewish queen, but I want to do that in the context of gospel application uh, this morning. So I think that this idea that she is a Jewish queen really helps us to see, uh, to get us to the gospel and remind us that it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done for us. Okay, so I want to end with this picture. I just want to say that uh, some of this I got from interacting with a good friend of mine. Um, And he helped me see some of this as well. But in the book of Esther, Esther has a dual role. Okay, She is both Jewish and a queen. She's a queen, but in chapter 6, we're seeing some of the importance of her Jewish ethnicity coming forward. And some of this will expand even next week as we get into chapter 7 as well first reading of this, it may seem like a small thing, the fact that she is a Jewish queen, but it powerfully points us to Jesus. So we've got to understand that the Bible is always concerned with moving us from physical examples to greater spiritual realities. This is what the Bible does. It takes physical stories, physical examples, and then it points us to greater spiritual realities. So it's vital we learn to read the Bible in a way where we see ourselves maybe as Haman. Or we see King Ahasuerus depicting God when it's appropriate. Today, we see whispers of Jesus in and through Esther. So Esther was a Jewish woman. This was not well known in the king's quarters, but it's an essential part of who she is. She is a Jewish woman. In order for Esther to be a deliverer for the Jewish people, she must be connected to power, she must be connected to the king. And she is queen, she is very connected. To the king, This is what gave Esther access to the inner room that we talked about last week. This is what allowed her to have affinity with the king or to the king. Now similarly, Jesus' deliverance of his people, of his church, is predicated on him having the power and authority as God as well as then identifying with his people in a very new, uh, near way, as a human. okay. So it's not just the fact that he is God up above, he also has to draw near to us. As Esther has nearness to King Ahasuerus, Jesus has nearness to the one true king, his father, If Esther isn't queen or Jewish, none of this is happening. And here's why this is important. Jesus is like Esther, but in a greater way. Like Esther, but in a greater way, Jesus had the dual role. He was God and man. He was divine and human. And so in this, what we see is that Esther and Jesus are intermediaries. There had to be someone between the king and his evil edict to kill Jewish people. There had to be someone between him and his edict and the Jewish people. And it was Esther. Likewise, we need an intermediary as well. We are sinful people who are doomed to suffering and death because of our sin against a holy king. We also need a mediator as well. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And so, our gospel application point is Jesus is our mediator. Now, This is not just some religious jargon, okay? This is not just some deep theological concept. This is not a small thing. This has practical relevance for us. This is where rock-solid hope comes from. We have a deliverer who had and has access to the inner room who is God Himself. He stands between us and all of our sinfulness and God and all of His holiness. And so this week, when you sin against God, and you will, that's going to happen, you don't have to despair. Your plea is Jesus. He is the one who stands between a holy God, and your sinful self. He is the one who mediates forgiveness to us. He is the one who has positional authority and the sinless human nature to save us. If we have no Jesus, if we have no mediator, we'll either end up in despair or We will simply make life of no consequence whatsoever. We're just here to have some fun, play some games, giggle a little bit, and then die. Life, in many senses, becomes meaningless, which is what many people think life is. But it's not. Jesus mediates forgiveness. But, but beyond that, and I'm not saying that's a small thing, he also mediates hope for us in the everyday. He also mediates meaning to us. He also mediates comfort to us. And as these things are mediated to us, we then can mediate the same to others. Grace is given so that grace Can be extended. Comfort is given so that comfort can be offered to others. And in all of this, then, our lives can point to the mediator that others are looking for. The answer, the solution that people are longing for, even if they don't know that is who or what they are longing for. Jesus is the answer for us, for you, for me. This is what I need to hear. This is what you need to hear. Jesus is the answer. But so do your neighbors. So do your children. So do your friends. So do your co-workers. They need to hear Jesus. And all the hope, meaning, comfort, in him.